Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. The woke madness in history education is off the rails. Well, how do we change it? McClanahanAcademy.com. And because you listen to this podcast, if you use the coupon code PODCAST at checkout, you get 25% off every day, all day, 365 days a year on every class at McClanahanAcademy.com. So go to McClanahanAcademy.com, use coupon code PODCAST at checkout, and get a real history education at 25% off. More Americans are supporting secession, and the Washington Post wants to figure out why. Well, I kind of stumble into the answer, and I'll talk about it on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N. McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that. You can also click on that support tab when you're at brianmcclanahan.com. Go to Spotify for podcasters. You can subscribe there. You can click on that super thanks button if you're watching on YouTube or the shop button on my webpage. You get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. All those are great ways to support the show financially. Throw a few pennies my way. But you can also rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast so people know you love it. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. Send me those show requests and comment on YouTube for the algorithm. All those are painless ways to help support the show because you get more eyes and ears on the show and I get to talk about what you want to hear. All right, well, let's talk about a interesting topic and that is secession. I've done this many, many times, but it appears that more and more Americans are open to the idea of secession. And the question is why? Well, the Washington Post is very concerned about this. You see, they want to know who these people are that are favoring secession. Who are these people? Who are these weird people out there wanting to break up the Union? Well, first and foremost, we have to understand why this is happening. And I think that's something that just about everybody misses in America. Why is it that more Americans are open to secession? Now, it depends on where you are in the United States as to how many people are open to this. In the South, it's higher than in other parts. Uh, it also depends on party. Generally, Republicans are more open to it than Democrats, though it's not always the case. You have a lot of Democrats who are now open to the idea because they don't think they're ever going to win a national election or that the Supreme Court, the conservative federal courts, are going to undo everything they want. So they might as well get out of the union and have their socialist utopia. Well, I'm all for it. But here is the issue. And for all of these things, why is it that more Americans are talking about secession. Well, because we've lost federalism. Now, this isn't new. We lost federalism a long time ago. In fact, we lost federalism really in the 19th century, even before the war. Most people say, well, we lost federalism in the war. We lost it before that. In fact, we lost federalism really in 1789. It just took some time for it to steamroll and get to the war in 1860 and 61 when secession actually took place beginning in 1860. But we were losing federalism a long time before the South decided it had to leave the Union. Now, of course, one of the arguments against what I'm saying is, well, the South cited federalism as a problem. They were against states' rights. Well, they had made statements that the North was illegally nullifying federal law. And 
as far as the law, they were correct about this. The North was illegally nullifying federal law. Now, there is some interesting elements to that charge. What had happened in the 1830s and 40s is the North started passing what were called personal liberty laws. And these personal liberty laws were designed to thwart the Fugitive Slave Law. Now, the Fugitive Slave Law is in the Constitution. It allows, the Constitution allows for the central government to pass legislation in favor of reacquiring fugitives. Now, it doesn't say what these fugitives are. They could be fugitives from the law for any reason. But in the 1800s and before the war, in the antebellum period, usually this was for slaves. So the Congress passed a series of laws that would allow the general government to collect runaway slaves, and they could use the Federal Marshal Service to do it. What they had also required, though, is that the states would use their resources to uh, reacquire these slaves as well, these, these runaway slaves. Well, the states had passed laws saying they're not going to do it. And in fact, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the states, said the states aren't bound to use their resources to reacquire fugitive slaves. That's not something the federal government can do it. The federal government can use all their resources. They could have an entire division set aside for this. They could do whatever they want because it is in the Constitution. But, and that's the Marshal Service, but the states don't have to do it. The states aren't duty-bound to use their own resources to go reacquire fugitive slaves. Well, the South said this was a violation of the Constitution. It was a violation of the compact. And so that was a nullification of something that was actually in the Constitution. There is, that is at least a, an interesting legal question. The South at the same time had also said that the protective tariff was unconstitutional because it amounted to an export tax. And uh, the proponents of the tariff, people like Henry Clay and others, said that wasn't necessarily true. In fact, I talk about this in my latest class at McLean Academy, The Age of Jackson. I go over Henry Clay's defense of the tariff and this charge that the tariff was an export tax. He actually gets into it. But when you look at how the tax was used, you could say it was an export tax because southern cotton and southern agricultural products were being used as a carrot, so to speak. And so um, to control international trade, and it did amount to somewhat of an export tax. So the South said that the tariff was unconstitutional, even though that's also in the Constitution. So there's a lot of things going on here uh, when it comes to nullification. But the issue of federalism is even bigger than that. It's not just the fugitive slave law. It's not just the protective tariff. It's just about anything the general government did that wasn't enumerated in the Constitution. And so over time, you have both Northerners and Southerners. I mean, this wasn't just a Southern issue. Northerners also, uh, many of them, uh, claimed that the United States was acting unconstitutionally all the time. And these were not, this is not just on the issue of slavery. You had all kinds of things that were happening. Internal improvements, protective tariffs, central banking. There were many Northerners against these things, just as Southerners were. And so this was a real issue. If the general government can sit there and pass unconstitutional legislation at all times, that's going to infringe on the abilities of the states to do these things, or they're, they're doing things that the state should be exclusively bound to do, well, then you've just destroyed federalism. And the things that we're talking about in the 19th century are minor compared to what's happening now, where every issue in the United States becomes a quote-unquote national issue. It doesn't matter if it's uh, education, the environment, trade policy, 
take your pick. The culture war should never be a national issue. That's really the that's really what's happening in America right now. That's why Americans are so angry. I've talked about this many times. Americans are angry because every issue has been quote unquote nationalized. We don't allow anything to take place at the, at the state level anymore without some kind of national interference. If there's an issue, and I've talked about this, say with the Second Amendment, if uh, some state passes a stupid gun restriction law like what happened in Arizona, it's an immediate appeal to the U.S. federal courts where it should be handled in state court. That's a state issue, not a federal issue. The federal government didn't pass the law. The state did. And so this is not something that the federal government should even be involved in. The federal government did not have a, a veto, a negative, of state law. In fact, John Rutledge in the Philadelphia Convention said if it did, if it had the ability to negate a state law, that alone would damn the Constitution. That was his words. If there was a federal negative, and it was brought up in the Philadelphia Convention and explicitly rejected. Most people don't realize that. To have a veto of state law was brought up in the Philadelphia Convention. Now, of course, you're going to say to me, well, yeah, McClanahan, what about the 14th Amendment? The 14th Amendment incorporated the Bill of Rights. No, it didn't. There were certainly people that talked about it, and I've done a whole podcast on this a couple of times. There are certainly people that talked about it. Even Bingham himself suggested it. But you know what? That wasn't how it was ratified. It wasn't how it was agreed to in Congress. And in fact, that was also rejected when the amendment was going through the approval process in Congress. If you want to read a really good book on that, a concise book, Get Raoul Berger's The 14th Amendment. He answers all the critics. His government by judiciary was highly controversial. And so he produced a follow-up book entitled The 14th Amendment, where he answers all the critics uh, about that. Now, of course, the current interpretation by the 14th Amendment originalists uh, is that, well, I mean, the 14th Amendment did incorporate. Everyone thought this was what it was going to do. No, no, they didn't. In fact, the Republican-controlled Supreme Court explicitly rejected that, too, in the slaughterhouse cases. So there's a whole lot going on here that's simply just ignore. You know, Randy Barnett's book on the 14th Amendment. you got Eric Foner out there running around with, the, with this new interpretation of the 14th Amendment. Uh, you have Noah Feldman, the broken constitution, saying the 14th Amendment changed everything. It was a, and, and in, in a way, it's the interpretation of the 14th that actually brought about a new revolution in America a second American revolution. But that's the issue. We Americans are angry because everything becomes a federal issue, and the states don't do anything themselves. And what do I mean by that? Well, they just simply punt. The states just decide, well, we're not going to do any of this. We're not going to take care of this. We're, not gonna, we're looking at flooding in the New York City subway. Well, where's our federal dollars to fix that? Well, why don't you fix it with New York dollars? We're looking at high crime in Philadelphia. Well, why don't you fix that? The police were defunded in Philadelphia by the people there. So in order to get that back, you don't need the federal government involved. You need the actual morons in the city of Philadelphia or the, or the idiots in Pennsylvania to try to bring that back. When you have crime in areas, then the people of those areas need to take care of it, not somebody in some state, you know, five or six states over. That's not their business. It's not their job. If you have school issues, if the kids in Baltimore are 0% proficient in math, in reading, which the data is now that they are, that's not a national issue. That's a state issue and a local issue. What's going on there? Well, people are afraid to talk about these things because, of course, then you start getting into all kinds of other social issues, and that becomes very divisive. But the issues, all these issues, are really state and local issues. But we've lost 
the ability to think that way. That's why the whole theme of this show is think locally, act locally, to get thinking this way again. And I see it. You know, I do see there was actually an effort made by some Republicans in some states to really work to get more and more uh, conservatives on local school boards because that's where you start making an impact and to try to clean up these schools that are overrun with woke stupidity. That's the issue. Or to try to clean up your local governments that are overrun with woke stupidity. I talked about it a couple weeks ago when I was still healthy. I took a week off because I was ill, but uh, when I was a couple of weeks back and the, the issue of that little town in Michigan that uh, has decided it's not going to allow pride flags on state proper, on city property, I should say. So, I mean, this is a local issue. It's not a national issue. So, let me talk about this article. Who are the Americans who support secession? Again, this is the Washington Post. It's an article by Philip Bump. <laughs> Great. And it gets into this issue of who's really supporting secession in America now. So he says, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene reached the point of diminishing returns some time ago. The first sentence is absolutely hilarious. Reached the point of diminishing returns. So it's, you know, when she says something or, uh, I mean, you take any of any kind of a more bombastic member of the Republican Party in Congress, but particularly Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Washington Post is going to be all over it. And for a piece or for a paper that's supposed to be, you know, nonpartisan or neutral, they're not. I mean, that's that's the thing. Democracy dies in darkness because the Washington Post is an idiotic paper. But I subscribe to the Washington Post, so you don't have to. But the first line is hilarious, so it's all Marjorie Taylor Greene's fault. One can only repeat fringe rhetoric so many times before it loses its shock value, but before it just becomes the sort of thing you're expected to say. Fringe rhetoric. This is fringe rhetoric. What these people don't realize is that when Marjorie Taylor Greene, when she said that uh, on September 11th that maybe it's time to start thinking about secession, there are a lot more Americans thinking about this now than there were 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And, I, and I've said this you know, 25 years ago, close to 30 years ago, when I start be, becoming, started becoming interested in secession, there was nobody really talking about it. The fact that you have members of Congress now openly talking about it 30 years later shows you that it's not necessarily on the fringe anymore. Marjorie Taylor Greene is not a fringe member of Congress. She's a member of Congress and a popular one. I mean, among conservatives, now, it's just like saying Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a popular member of Congress among the left. She's popular. And the conservatives love to criticize her, just like Marjorie Taylor Greene who the left likes to criticize. Now, I've had my own criticisms of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and, and some of the other members on the right of Congress. But these are, these are people in Congress. It's not like somebody uh, on social media is sitting there running their mouth about this. This is something that's happening in Congress. So it's not fringe anymore. Once people in Congress start talking about it, it's not fringe. So when she argued on September 11th, Patriot Day of some, some habit, the state should consider secession. It attracted much less attention than similar outbursts she's offered in the past. Well, no, it didn't, because it was all over the place. If you were paying attention just a couple of weeks ago, it was all over the place. People were talking about it in the mainstream media everywhere. And the Washington Post clearly was listening because, well, they produced an article about it. Much less attention, the Washington... 
Think about what this guy just did, what Bump just did. This didn't gather much attention, but I'm writing about it. If you go and do a search for it, there's article after article after article about it. It was all over social media. So to say it gathered a lot less attention is a lie. But it's worth considering Green's comments less for argument than for what it doesn't capture well. The reason that about one in five Americans support the concept of secession. So now Philip Bump is going to try to tell us. He's going to try to tell us why Americans support secession. And let me tell you, it's not the reason I gave you. For the representative from Georgia, the punitive rationale for secession was the border. President Biden's policy, she claimed, included a refusal to stop the invasion of cartel-led human and drug trafficking into her country, which meant that states should consider seceding from the Union. Well, I mean, this is true. The Biden administration is not doing anything about massive immigration into the United States, legal or illegal. It's not doing anything about it, and it is causing problems, particularly in border states. In fact, the general government policy has let them all in. Well, what's that going to do, ultimately, to the character and makeup of the American polity in any of the states that they go? I mean, the, the left doesn't like it when Texas or Florida sends refugees into New York City. They can't take them, they say. We're a sanctuary city, but we can't take any more. Well, why is it that Texas can take them or Florida can take them? They can't. But, of course, Texas and Florida are, quote-unquote, red states. So you're going to want to pump all these people into there. Well, because that means you're going to change the electoral makeup of those states. These people mean votes eventually. So that's why they want to do it. So Bump says, this is not a well-honed argument, of course. It's ostensibly an effort to cast Biden as negligent and dangerous. Well, he is. This is true. There's nothing untrue about that statement. He is negligent. He is dangerous. Joe Biden should be impeached. Just like I've said, every president virtually for the last hundred years should have been impeached. When I said that, when I wrote my Founding Fathers Guide to the Constitution, people got very upset about that. But if you think about it logically, I mean, Republicans have been just as bad about this as Democrats. So, I mean, presidents should be impeached according to how we thought about impeachment or at least how the founders sold impeachment during the ratification process. Negligence was actually one of the high crimes and misdemeanors. It was listed by someone like James Madison. Negligence. If you're negligent in the job, you should be impeached. If you're overtly partisan, you should be impeached. Particularly federal judges, but that's a whole other issue. Nor does it seem that frustration with the federal government is necessarily what motivates support for secession. Instead, new research from Colby College, assistant professor Nicholas F. Jacobs, argues that an important factor in support of secession is the division between states. It's division between states. Partisan uh, intensity does not do much explanation in existing support for secession, Jacobs explained in an email. Rather, it is highly dependent almost entirely on whether or not someone really thinks that red and blue states are just different, and different on meaningful dimensions, such as quality of government services, etc. And that, he argues, is a threat to confidence in our existing system. So you see, it's, it's not the general government everybody's upset about. It's the fact that California is so bad, and, you know, um, Texas is so good. That's why people are upset. 
They don't want to be in a union with California. Well, but what's the issue there? It's the fear that California is going to run the general government. And is it not? Do we not have a general government right now that's essentially run by California? Think about it. Nancy Pelosi was Speaker of the House for a long time. Now Kevin McCarthy is. We have the President of the Senate from California. We're talking about Gavin Newsom being a major candidate for president from the Democratic Party. Joe Biden, of course, is from Delaware, slash really from Pennsylvania, but senator from Delaware. And so you have that East Coast kind of elitist still, but Biden is irrelevant. What you have running the United States government right now, essentially, are the blue states. It doesn't matter if it's on the left or the right, but that's who's running the government. The blue states are running the government. Illinois for a long time. Now we've got, you had New York with Donald Trump. And you had, of course, now you have Pennsylvania, California. That's who's running the government. And of course, because of that, you get people on the right who are very upset because generally the people on the right are in the South and the West. So you still have a sectional divide. But in reality, yes, the issue is between states, but it's more about Who's going to control the levers of federal power? So this is why the states matter. This is an intro. I mean, Jacobs is not necessarily wrong. But the issue of who controls the general government is also important. So if you've got a whole bunch, a block of blue states controlling the general government, a block of red states are not going to like that. And if you've got this block of blue states that do absolutely insane things, or if you're in a blue state and you have a block of red state that you think are doing absolutely insane things, why do you want to be in a union with those people? It's a real question. When political divisions take on a territorial dimension, he writes in the paper, seeing red and blue, foundational attitudes central to maintaining the delicate federal relationship are challenged. Well, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be if we believed in federalism. What is the, He's missing the whole point here. There's a delicate federal relationship only because we have too much centralization. If we all believed in federalism, California could be California, and Texas could be Texas, and Massachusetts could be Massachusetts, and Alabama could be Alabama, and Montana could be Montana, and that would be the way it worked. Florida could be Florida. I made a point that you know Ron DeSantis likes to say, you know, this is what I did in Florida. This is what I did in Florida. He says that a lot. Florida is not the United States, and the powers of the general government are completely different than they are at the state level. And by running around saying this is what I did in Florida, you're you're implying that you're going to do the same thing at the general government, and you can't. The powers are completely different. A governor has much more power than a president, in reality, at least according to the original Constitution. But that's not how we think about these things. So Jacob says, no longer one country seeking to accommodate diverse peoples. No longer one country seeking to accommodate diverse peoples. Well, the one country part of that is the problem. Seeking to accommodate diverse peoples. It's not accommodation. This is why the general government had so few powers. It's why the powers were few and defined, as was argued when the Constitution was ratified. Because of, of powers that are few and defined means that just about everything else goes to the states. You don't have to worry about Massachusetts controlling South Carolina or vice versa. If you go back and read the ratification debates, and you know what? I've got a great class at McClanahan Academy on this. It's called the Originalist Papers. A hundred 
100 documents in favor of ratification. 100 documents that go into this. It's an awesome class. Plus, you can get my Founding Father's Guide to the Constitution. I cover it there, too. And if you don't want to get something from me, get Kevin Goodsman's The Politically Incorrect, Incorrect Guide to the Constitution. He gets into that, too. But this is the issue. You see, Jacobs doesn't even understand federalism. Because look how he said I'm going to read his full quote. No longer one country seeking to accommodate diverse peoples. Some individuals see many peoples fitting uneasily into one federation, threatening collective decision-making. That's because there wasn't supposed to be collective decision-making on most issues. Trade and defense was the only thing we needed collective decision-making on. And even there, there were some divisions. But the whole idea of the United States was like the old Roman Empire in this way. You keep the United States open. You keep the flow of commerce open in the United States. You don't have any tariffs between states. You don't do any of that nonsense. You keep it all open. You keep it all free. And when you do that, you're going to keep people happy. You don't have excessive regulations or anything else. You keep trade open. And then, of course, you can you have one voice when it comes to international trade, and you have one voice when it comes to foreign policy, which makes all those things easier. And you're supposed to do it for the good of the whole, not just one state or one section. That's what a union means. That was the whole point of the federal government. That's it. That's it. That's what the federal government was supposed to do. This is how Roger Sherman explained it of Connecticut. This is not me. This is the people that ratified and wrote the Constitution. That's how they explained it. We weren't supposed to be debating education policy in Washington, D.C. We weren't supposed to be debating uh, you know, environmental policy in Washington, D.C., or marriage in Washington, D.C. These are not issues for Washington, D.C. These are issues for local governments. We're not supposed to be debating crime policies in Washington, D.C. Federal laws on crime are all redundant and illegal. They're all unconstitutional. Because there's only, so, there's only a few defined things that the general government can actually legislate on when it comes to crime. There are very few federal crimes in the Constitution. So, for example, a federal law against murder is redundant. Why? Well, because states have laws against murder. It's already taken care of. Now, if you're talking about murder, say, on a military base or something like that, well, then that's a whole other situation. But just a federal law against murder is redundant. The states already have it. The whole idea, though, is to trap people. Uh, so, that's uh, something that people miss. So Jacob says, in the United States, between 20 and 30 percent of Democrat and Republican partisans are willing to express some agreement with secessionist sentiments, even in the absence of major secessionist party or movement. Well, that's going to be the case, because secessionism is not necessarily a party or a movement. This would have to happen from a convention. You would have to have a state call a convention, and then you would have to go from there. As part of his research, he asked respondents to evaluate a number of political questions, including three that addressed secession. About 18% of respondents agreed with all three proposals, including having states with opposing politics leave the union, having their own state do, or simply agreeing that some division of the country made sense. But again, this sentiment overlapped with the perception that there is a bifurcation between types of states. Those favoring secession are the least likely to tolerate partisan differences between the states, he writes. 
while at the same time they are the most likely to see state-level political divides. Soon after Jacobs and I had communicated about his research, Pew Research Center released a new analysis of America's political divisions. Included in this analysis was a measure that seemed salient to Jacobs' observation. Most Americans are very or extremely concerned that a person's rights might be different based on the state they are in, including nearly three-quarters of Democrats. So see, what is, what, is the, what is the issue there? Think about what they just said. Three-quarters of Democrats, 75% of Democrats are worried that somebody's rights might be different in, say, Alabama than they are in California. That is the Puritan mind. That is Puritanism to its political Puritanism purely expressed. I'm not saying that to be a pun, but it is. The Puritan mind is that somebody somewhere might be doing something you don't want do, them doing, and you have to do something about that. So if they if they can't, then they just want to leave. That's the that is a the best expression I've seen in a long time of the Puritan, the political Puritan mind at work. What they really want to do is control those other states. But if they can't do it, they can't force them to do something. They can't create the shining city upon a hill that comes out of their own mind. Well, then we got to get out of this thing. In other words, they're intolerant. They're intolerant because somewhere else might be doing something they don't agree with. It's political intolerance that drives the left. They're the most intolerant people you'll ever find. And it shows up. They don't, they don't think that way. They think, no, no, I'm tolerant. I, you're not tolerant. That's why I'm against you. No, tolerance would mean that, well, if you don't agree with what we're doing here, you just kind of say, okay, live and let live. That's tolerance. These people are intolerant. Most on the right would just say, well, I mean, we, you just do what you do. And, I mean, I say most. There are people on the right who wouldn't do that. They are the right-wing Puritans. But they would say, you just do what you're going to do in your state. and We'll just do what we do here. I mean, when I look at all the crazy things going on, say, San Francisco... I don't really worry about it too much. Why? Because I don't live in San Francisco. It's unfortunate for the people that live there that have to deal with that. But you know what? They can clean up their own mess. And why should I be involved and clean that up? I don't live there. Thankfully. And if you don't want to live there, move. Get out. And leave it to them. There's been a big jump in that belief since 2022, especially, uh, certainly in large part because of the shift in access to abortion. But this suggests... It increased the, in the extent to which Democrats, in particular, view states' governance as often dissimilar, a view that correlates to more acceptance of secession. So, Democrats don't like it when people, they can't control you. That's the whole issue. It's a lack of commitment to federalism. What did I say? That's what's driving the left. What's driving the right is that you've got a bunch of nuts out there trying to govern us from the center. You see, so it really is an agreement. Democrats want to dominate. They want to control everybody. When they can't do it, they want to leave. The right looks at it, well, we're, we don't want to be controlled by a bunch of Democrats, so if they're trying to do it, we want to leave. Jacobs was quick to point out in his paper and in our discussion that he is not suggesting that violence will follow. Americans' experience with calls for secession was, of course, intermingled with horrific violence and a subsequent slow recovery. Well, why? Didn't have to be. Lincoln didn't have to invade the South. <laughs> that, could have been, that could have been it. And there were abolitionists actually who said, hey, this isn't what we want. The Deep South's out. Didn't we want to have a United States 
excuse me, United States with no slavery? Isn't that what we were looking for? Why don't we just let them go? That wasn't what they were going to do because they had to force. It was the political Puritan mind. They had to be forced into the Union. But he also indicated that he wasn't sure how this sense of two countries are emerging might be countered. A substantial contingent of both major parties view themselves as vulnerable to the other party, he explained. That sense of vulnerability might be ameliorated by empowering more state-level decision-making. But that would, that would then heighten the extent of the perceived divide between states. What did he just say there? A substantial contingent of both major parties view themselves as vulnerable to the other party. Okay, right, because of too much centralization. So Jacobs is figuring out, well, well maybe what we need to do is have more uh, state-level decision-making. So maybe if we actually had more federalism, but who would be upset about that? Well, the left. The left would be upset about that because they couldn't control the right anymore. They couldn't control Alabama or Texas or Florida. Well, that would be bad to them. What really needs to happen is the mental disease of nationalism and the political Puritan mind needs to be cleansed. That's what needs to happen. Jacob says, to the extent that this is what drives support for secession, it seems like in our highly nationalized and polarized political climate, further decentralization is just as problematic as greater centralization. No, only for a group. I think most Americans... Most Americans would be on board with more decentralization because they could run their own lives. And they wouldn't have to worry about Washington, D.C. And you do have people on the left that aren't nuts. They would say, hey, it would be great if we could just be Vermont. We could all wear our Birkenstocks and socks and listen to fish all day and uh, you know, be a bunch of you know, neo-hippies. That'd be great. Or we could just be California and we could just be a bunch of little socialists out here in California. We wouldn't have to worry about anybody else from Texas telling us what to do. And then there's the other problem. States are not themselves homogenous. That was always the case. Even in the 1860s, the states weren't necessarily homogenous. Even in the South, you didn't have no homogenous states. You didn't have an homogenous South. That's, that's always been the issue. No matter what Marjorie Taylor Greene wants, he said, secession won't offer that salve in the United States since the divide exists within the states as much as it does between them. As good a reason to avoid secession as any. So that's Philip Bump's concluding statement. As good a reason to avoid secession as any, because the states might have divisions. Yeah, but, well, if the majority want it out, well, then that's what happens, and people can just leave. We believe in majoritarian government unless the majority doesn't want to do what we want to do. Now, a federal system. Again, we had, we had real diversity in the United States even in 1789, we had diversity in the United States. We had different groups and people and cultures and everything else. And so federalism was a way to handle all of that. Our problem, as Jacobs kind of you know, stumbles into at the end of this, is something I've been talking about for years. That's why you listen to this show. You've been on the cutting edge of this stuff. If you've been listening to this show for seven years, you've been on the cutting edge of this. I've been talking about this for more than seven years, though. Over a decade been interested in it for over 20 years, but that's why. That's why. If we want to solve these problems, you got to decentralize. And you got to convince people that they can't always do something about what somebody else is doing. You have to cleanse America of the political Puritan mind. See you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.